if you're one of the people that kept listening after the Charlemagne episodes, you're going to love the Barbarossa line. The ancient Barbarossa, Frederick the Kaiser Great, within the castle cavern sits in enchanted state. He did not die, but ever waits in the chamber deep, where hid under the castle he sat himself to sleep. The splendor of the empire he took with him away, and back to earth will bring it when dawns the promised day. The chair is ivory purest, whereof he makes his bed. The table is of marble, whereon he props his head. His beard not flags but burning, with fierce and fiery glow, right through the marble table, beneath his chair does grow. He nods in dreams and winketh, with full half-open eyes, and once an age he beckons, a page that standeth by. He bids the boy in slumber, O dwarf, go up this hour, and see if still the ravens are flying round the tower. And if the ancient ravens still wheel above us here, then I must sleep enchanted for many a hundred years. Salvete and guten tag, everyone. You're listening to the Ravens Are Flying podcast, where two amateur historians discuss the Holy Roman Empire the way other podcasts discuss pop culture. Today we're going to be doing another mega-length episode on... Book Two of the Deeds of Frederick Barbarossa by Bishop Otto of Freising. If you have any thoughts about this episode or anything else, feel free to let us know at ravensareflying at gmail.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy. All right, Tim, we're back for more Barbarossa adventures. We are. Uh, although, I don't know, at least the way I recall recording episode one of this work it was like the Otto of Freising adventures. That's and, true. Oh, well, and actually literally, uh, literally Frederick's grandfather's adventures. Grandfather who, was he also named Frederick? It, uh, Conrad, right? Conrad. Conrad was his This is a really uncle. strong start. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, shoot. Yeah, this is, I'm like drawing out of the hat of the five German names that there are. Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> you get you guess you guess Conrad, Frederick, or Henry. Odds are good you're going to be right. Uh, or Otto. Yeah. Otto, that's true. Um, like the fourth name. No, because remember, book one literally uh, Frederick comes in at the very end and goes on the crusade and you know performs poorly. Well, the crusade performs poorly. He performs admirably in in the micro level. On the macro level, things do not go well. But, yes. but then on the cosmic level, we are reminded by His Holiness the Pope uh, and also uh, His Excellency Otto of Freising that uh, things actually did go well in a spiritual sense. Um, Precisely. And so at the very beginning of book two, we properly start the deeds of Frederick Barbarossa insofar as the very first thing that happens is that he is crowned king of the germans king of the romans which Whoa. is also isn't he king of the romans king of the romans king of the germans it's i don't think for the same thing well we're about to read it i don't think they actually specify what title he's being 
round two. But there's a separate thing where he goes and collects, you know, the imperial title for real. That's, or you're saying that yeah. the, the Germans refer to their kingship as the king of the Romans. Right, yeah. So the, the, the official title of the king of East Francia at this time, I believe, is, you know, uh, Rex Romanorum. Um, you will find no one more ready uh, to believe this than I. So, <laughs> yeah, no. So you actually. So this is the era where you. I mean, and it's sort of it. It's true for a long time that like uh, the king of like you have this process where he's first crowned king of the Romans, and uh, then is crowned emperor uh, after he's already king. Um, so the king of the Romans is actually king of Germany, and then emperor is, of course, emperor of the known world. Um, yes, that's that's perfectly fair. I actually think we um, we talked about this at one point. No, never mind. I just I think we both read about it, right, and then talked about it, not on the podcast where we talk about exactly these things, right? Because he's also and he's also he because he, it's important because he also is king of two other places. Um, sometimes, right. At least two other places. Uh, Frederick II is king of three other places. There's there, there's a lot going on here, uh, but it's a difference. There's a di he has different responsibilities as king and emperor, um, but we don't need to get into that now. What we need to get into now his his him becoming king, right? Yes, um, and one thing that I want to mention as a preface to what we're going to read read is that Otto points out that the reason there was so much support for him becoming king, because he was the nephew. Right. Yeah, he was Conrad's nephew. And so it's sort of like, well, who's this going to go to? Uh, and one of the reasons is that he was of age and very accomplished and everybody liked and respected him. Right. Uh, but the other is that he was descended both from the Velfs and the Veblings, uh, which for anybody who's, you know, familiar with medieval Europe knows that like the Velfs, Veblings, the Guelphs, the Ghibellines, those two major like weird sort of aristocratic lineages. I don't know how it works in a sort of transalpine context. Like why do the Italians have these same divisions that the Germans have? So, it's unclear to me. Yes. <laughs> you might know that. <laughs> My understanding is that, so right, so they start out as they're two different tribes of there are two well not even they're like two different families dynasties clans if you will of the imperial aristocracy uh ah, okay that makes sense for why it would uh cross national borders yeah eventually for it gets its importance yeah it gets translated into like who is supporting the pope and who is supporting the emperor in italy uh and that's of course, you know, oversimplifying it, I think, is, is my understanding is that it's very complicated and sort of a, a, a very, you know, messy process when it gets down to Italy. But yeah, it, the names originate as two different families of Germans. Um, okay, that's that's helpful then. Because um, the I first learned about this conflict through Dante's involvement in it. Because for him, it was the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. Uh, I'm sure I'm butchering the Italian there. Um, and so those factions were what got him or his stake in uh, in that controversy is what got him exiled 
And so anyway, what we're finding here is that Frederick has close blood ties to both of these houses. And so in addition to simply being the right age and someone that everyone liked, he also had the potential to heal this deep-seated, we won't say division, but sort of simmering and ongoing conflict. There's been, Uh, yeah, a counterproductive rivalry is maybe the best way to put it. That is, man. (laughs) You should write uh, working documents for businesses. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Um... (laughs) Yeah, so uh, so he's got, right, so he is basically, like, the hope is everyone will like this guy. Uh, he's, you know, a massive jock, uh, very, you know, very good at, at winning crowds over, a very likable guy. Um, we can probably make this guy, em- we can probably make this guy emperor and things will go okay. Um, you know, and he's, you know, fortunately... There's a lot of bad stuff going on in the Empire right now. We don't really have time to wait for Conrad's son um, to become uh, uh, the kind of, you know, an adult man who can lead armies because that's what we need the Emperor to do right now. This is this is not a period where the Emperor can just, you know, like sit in a big fancy chair and eat chocolate and listen to opera. Like, we need a guy who can, you know, we need a guy who can go and, 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 and fight and, uh, you know, mess up anybody who's causing problems so yes and okay so that's that's the context under which he's elected by the princes of germany uh or the princes of the romans josh and uh we've got a couple paragraphs to read about his coronation i'll read the first one and then do you want to hop in and read the second one or does it matter yeah so i'll start to buff this too yeah. All right, so you, you go first. Okay. So this is Otto talking about the, the actual ceremony of the coronation. I think I ought not to omit the fact that while the diadem was being placed on Frederick's head, so literally as the crown is coming down, after the completion of the sacramental anointing, one of Frederick's retainers, from whom for certain grave offenses he had withdrawn his favor before he was king, cast himself at his feet in the center of the church hoping to turn the latter's spirit from the rigor of justice on so happy an occasion. So namely, this dude did a bunch of bad stuff. Frederick sort of kind of banished him or just, you know, withdrew his favor, as Otto says. Uh, And then it's like, okay, if I I cast myself at his literal feet in the literal center of the church. In the middle of mass, right? Because the coronation probably occurs between the gospel and uh, the beginning of the the uh right like between the the offertory yeah Yeah. um yeah so he's in the in the literal middle of the mass (laughs) um yeah and he's like aha he'll never turn me down in front of all these people uh but frederick maintained his previous severity and remained unmoved and thus gave to all of us no small proof of his firmness declaring that it was not from hatred but out of regard for justice that this man had been excluded from his patronage nor did this fail to win the admiration of many, that pride could not dissuade the young man, already, as it were, in possession of an old man's judgment, from virtuous firmness to the fault of laxity. What more need be said? 
Neither the intercession of the princes, nor the favor of smiling fortune, nor the present joy of so great a festival could help that poor wretch. He departed from the inexorable prince unheard. And I think, yeah, the old man's judgment, that's also a reference to the Book of Wisdom, right? Um, mm -hmm. But this too should not be veiled in silence, that on the same day and in the same church, the bishop-elect of Munster, also named Frederick, yeah, <laughs> so now, yeah. <laughs> you know how it is, uh, was consecrated by those same bishops who consecrated the king. So it was believed that the highest king and priest was actually participating in the present rejoicing. And this was the sign that in one church, one day beheld the anointing of the two persons who alone are sacramentally anointed, according to the ordinance of the New and of the Old Testament, and are rightly called the anointed of Christ the Lord. So there you go. The two people who are the two guys who are anointed according to both the Old and New Testament are the Davidic king and the or you know or the 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 king emperor who's the successor to the Davidic king, and then the the bishop the high priest. Yeah, and it's what I want to say is that this is terrifically important to understand this the essence or the character of the imperial authority, which explains why Frederick gets to run around and do the things that he's going to run around and do, uh, and why people want him to, in fact, do those things. And what I mean by that is, like, crossing the Alps and subduing a whole bunch of uh, recalcitrant Lombards and other, you know, mixtures of Italians. Um, and yeah, it's not just like, oh, hey, uh, he's, he's the representative of the will of the people or whatever, right. you know, no, he's, he's, the, <laughs> he is the anointed of God. He is the right. hand of divine justice. It's, it is, it is not bottom up. It is top down, baby. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is, ain't no social contracts here. No, this is a cosmic contract. The ruler and creator of the universe has made Frederick emperor over over the world. And, you know, he's 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 going to enforce order the way that gravity enforces order. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you could just as soon deny it. Would, it would be just as wise to deny him as to deny a hurricane. Um, in fact, less even perhaps even less wise to deny the emperor than to deny a hurricane. Uh, That's right. And it, I, I, even as I am emphasizing the hierarchy here and that this is a, a top-down imposition or a top-down sort of granting of authority from, you know, from God to Frederick. And this is, sorry, I'm probably saying some things gonna, I'm going to repent of when we talk about book three. <laughs> but, but, uh, oh man, I hope I didn't lose my train of thought. I may have. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So even as I'm emphasizing that the hierarchy and even as Otto and Frederick are emphasizing like the severity of this authority uh, when he dismisses this, this bad... Uh, this bad dude um, from his patronage, uh, you have to think about the fact that, like, it's being equated to the authority of the bishops. You know, it's the Old Testament 
consecration or yeah, the Old Testament consecration versus the New Testament consecration. And the Old Testament, of course, is the king, but the bishop is really like the shepherd of the people. And so I want to say that like, even though this is a top-down thing, this is about caring for and providing for the people in the same way that the bishop is the shepherd who takes care of the sheep and lays his life down for them. I think we're meant to understand that the, the king and the emperor has a similar duty for his people in that his life is really meant to be spent in order to preserve and provide for the good of his people. Right. And it's important that they're taking, right? Like they're taking our Lord's title, Christ, you know, Christ anointed one, right? Like that's obviously like that has a very literal meaning and it's reflected here. And that as the agent of Christ, he too is literally anointed uh, with oil yes. in a, in a right. sacramental ritual. So he is intended to be insofar as he is sort of acting as Christ's agent. He is a Christ-like king is the hope. And like you say, this means that he came, he's not, be, he's not being raised up, you know, the greatest of you shall be the servant of all the others applies both to spiritual leaders and to, to secular leaders in this worldview, right? That these guys have, it's the emperor is the servant of all the people, uh, even as he is their Lord. And so, like you say, he, this is, this king is not going to sit on a throne and like, just hang out and like, you know, pose for, pose for photographs or like go to fancy dinners and stuff. He's going to spend the rest of his life running back and forth across the Alps, you know, all over Germany, right? Like we've, we've mentioned before that the emperor has no fixed, uh, fixed house at this time. He has no fixed residence. He has basically like way stations that are managed by monastic communities and like various noblemen throughout Germany and a couple places in Italy that are basically like, this is just where the emperor stays when he's here, but he is like constantly traveling, constantly putting out fires, addressing things, you know, riding circuit, right? Because he's also the, the supreme secular legal authority. So he's, you know, hearing, yes. hearing cases, right? Like anything that's like this, you know, you don't, you don't take stuff to the Supreme court. You take stuff to the Imperial diet. Like you, if you got a big problem, you appeal to the emperor. Um, yeah. It, another analogy to the Bishop came up for me, as you mentioned that the sort of like circuit riding around to everybody's, you know, different houses and stuff, the Bishop, uh, Episcopal visitations work the same way where the Bishop actually has to like ask the parish if he can come and visit. Uh, and, you know, even though he has his cathedral or whatever, like as he goes around to everybody, he's actually, you know, sort of asking if he can be a good visitor <laughs> and do his, do the things that you need bishops to do, um, like confirm people and all that fun stuff. Uh, so anyway, another, another light analogy there. Right. Um, so as soon as he's crowned, Otto then introduces basically the two major problems that are going to confront his reign and make up the matter of books two, three, and four, effectively. Uh, and there's an internal conflict and an external conflict. Um, right. And I don't know how we want to 
go go about uh, introducing these things exactly? Well, fortunately, what should we address first? I mean, well, we can say we mean internal, external from the perspective of Germany, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, there's not. I mean, I'm sure he did have some kind of spiritual travails. But yeah, uh, yeah. In, internal as in uh, German problems and external as in imperial problems. Right. And not just but not just German now. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit, because our, <laughs> our our old pals, the Bohemians and also the Hungarians have now like when, so now we almost need to say like sort of like the the transalpine empire and the cisalpine empire from the perspective of rome of course right so uh you know germany broadly speaking when we're talking about germany here unless we i guess otherwise specify also now includes the bohemians and kind of sort of the hungarians too at least part of the time um but yes yeah so there's an internal problem to germany like to sort of everything north of the alps which is where the emperor has like much more like serious uh, like direct involvement much more regularly, uh, kind of his base of support, if you will. And then south of the Alps in Italy is the external problem, even though it's really technically internal to the empire, of course. Um, but it hasn't been acting like it, which is the whole problem. Um, so, I mean, maybe we'll just read uh, Otto's explanation of the problems, and then we can, uh, then we can address them uh, and, and sort of walk them out. Uh, is it four? Is the next? We have our our little chapters from. The, these are sort of classical chapters, so they're very. The smart. place that I'm seeing the. Oh, seven. the Bavarian, yeah, is to uh, book two, chapter seven. All right. Is... Since you looked up the, the location, I will read it. Uh, however, though all was prospering in his kingdom, the most serene prince was indeed very anxious to end without bloodshed that dispute over the Duchy of Bavaria between his own relatives, that is, Duke Henry, his paternal uncle, and Duke Henry his maternal uncle's son uh so you cannot you cannot make this up no yeah no you this this is this is just so i think one is duke henry of bavaria and the other is duke henry of of bavaria of, of, because they're right disputing they're, they're disputing bavaria <laughs> um, just kidding <laughs> i think one of them is also duke of saxony but uh yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, and I forget which is allied with which, but one of them is a Velf and the other is a Veibling. Right, yeah, here we go. And that's part of the reason I wanted to yeah preface that. Yeah. For the latter was the son of the former Duke Henry of Bavaria, whom King Conrad had been had compelled to remain in Saxony after he had been outlawed, as has been told elsewhere. Elsewhere is in his other book, The Two Cities. His duchy, he had bestowed first upon Leopold, the son of Margrave Leopold, and then upon this Henry, the younger Leopold's brother. So this is the son of Henry. He gave the duchy to Leopold, then he gave it to Leopold, then he gave it back to Henry, but now Henry's in a dispute with Henry. Oh, man. Yeah. I love these guys. <laughs> I, lo I love these guys. They just like, you know, we got a couple names that are real winners. Uh, let's just stick with them. The king, therefore, 
to decide the aforesaid strife by judicial decree or by his council, appointed for them a diet at the city of Würzburg. Würzburg? Sorry, Würzburg? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Our apologies. During the month of October, inasmuch as the one, that is the son of Duke Henry, appeared there and the other absented himself, the latter was summoned again and again. So, yeah. Uh, so basically what keeps happening with this internal dispute is he tries to keep, he keeps trying to get the two Henrys to show up to resolve this conflict. And one of them basically keeps ghosting him. Um, yeah. One of them shows up every time is like, yeah, sure. I'll come to the, I'll come to the table and have the discussion about what we should do to resolve this. And the other guy is like, if I never show up, they can't rule against me. Right. <laughs> also with the Duke Henry, uh, well, with what you said about there only being a few different names that are like real winners, I'm imagining, you know, a truly just world in which every American male were named, you know, like LeBron and Michael. <laughs> and <laughs> like, you know, these, these are the only two boy name choices you have if you're an aristocrat. Dare we hope. A real callback to episode one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, LeBron. But yeah, so uh, the difficulty here, or it, not the difficulty, I think Otto is setting up a juxtaposition for the way that the internal conflict, namely the Henry versus Henry conflict over the Duchy of Bavaria, is going to be handled by Frederick. And the way that he handles what we're referring to as the external conflict with the Italians. Yeah. Uh, and with the internal conflict, he uses diplomacy and leniency uh, and subtlety for various reasons. And with the Italians, he uses uh, horses and people on top of horses with swords. So, <laughs> so there's like... There's a real difference in program depending on the kind of problem. And it, we've talked a lot about how Otto is, you know, always sort of doing a couple things at the same time. One of them is simply recounting who Frederick is and what he's doing. But I think he's also drawing attention to the fact that, like, Frederick's real gifts are understanding how to best solve different kinds of problems. And the Henry problem isn't just going to be solved by throwing a bunch of soldiers and men at it and can, in fact, be solved by, as I said, diplomacy and subtlety. Whereas the Italian problem we're going to see really needs uh, a lot of dudes holding pointy things, you know, and not, <laughs> not giving up until the walls have been cast down. So that's, I think that's one of, the major, uh, one of the major things that Otto will be exploring throughout this book. Yeah. And uh, so, and we'll talk about why those two problems need to be handled differently. Uh, and to set up the Italian problem, since we've established the Henrys, uh, he, he says, like, the same diet, at the same diet, literally, like we're, Tim says, he's doing two things. He's doing, Otto's doing several things at once. Barbarossa has to do several things at once, too. <laughs> uh, at the same diet, exiles from Apulia, uh, whom Roger, Roger of Sicily, the Norman guy in Sicily, uh, had driven out from their native, native land, made tearful lament and cast themselves pitifully at the feet of the prince, both because of the affliction of these people and that he might receive the crown of empire. Because he has to be crown emperor 
and we're going to talk about this. This is, this is going to be great. Uh, it was solemnly agreed that an expedition to Italy should be undertaken within a little less than two years. So initially, he's going into Italy to sort of deal with Roger. But as we will discover, uh, before he can even get down to Normandy, there's problems like right over the border in, you know, it's Tuscany, right? Is where Milan is? Yeah. It's the name of the region. Um, there are, which is, you know, like you have to go through there to get to Normandy. So he's going to, you know, he doesn't even have the full scope of like, how bad the situation is in Italy right now. Um, there's also problems in Rome uh, <laughs> that, that are that we'll talk about. Basically, the Italian peninsula is a mess, uh, and they are pleading with Barbarossa to come and sort of begin sorting things out, which is what he's going to be doing for basically the rest of his life. Um, yeah, and this reminds me, we were really good about stating our thesis for book one about the... Uh, the almost like philosophical or like political theoretical point that Otto was making yes. in book one and book two has an, has, I think a similar, a similar central idea, which is very much what, uh, what explains Frederick's campaign in Italy, uh, which is basically that like, the the ruler the emperor brings about order through his personal presence and so like italy is in disarray because he's separated from it by the alps and so if he's too far away italy just descends into like madness and chaos and that's part of why you were talking about how the emperor actually needs to be sort of on the move all the time uh in order to attend to disorder and bring about order through his presence and through his activity. Um, so yeah, Italy is in dire need of some order. And so <laughs> Frederick is going to go down there. Right. He is going to bring the Imperial person to Italy uh, and order will coalesce around him. Um, and, and there's like a mystical, like we talked about the sacramental element of his consecration. There really is like a, a mystical element to the way that Otto really believes that this happens. You know, yeah. Frederick is now basically a magical guy because he has a literal, a literal supernatural blessing to bring about political order and stability to the world. And so if he goes somewhere and acts upon it, all of a sudden good things happen. Is, is sort of what Otto thinks, is how Otto thinks that this works. Right, yeah, it's like, this is, this is how the, this is how things are supposed to work. Like, this is, the, this is what you should do. Having it, right, like, and it's important, too, that this is the second book that he advances this theme, because remember, the first book was about stressing the humility of the, the emperor and his place infinitely lower than God. Nevertheless, yes despite being infinitely lower than God, he is God's agent in creating order in the secular sphere um, and in defending the church, as we will see. He, he is the sword which protects um, the church from its enemies. Uh, and I think, by the, yes, uh, and I think that there's a, I think that we actually retain some of this sense of the, 
essential presence of the ruler in uh, in times and episodes of disorder. So like a natural disaster. There was like a whole, remember like Hurricane Katrina, there was like a whole big thing about like, why is George W. Bush not there? That's true. You know? Yeah, like everybody wanted George W. Bush to go to New Orleans. And like, I don't think anybody thought that he could actually, like he's not gonna like pick up sandbags. Right. It's like, (laughs) I think we actually do just like, want our rulers to be somewhere and to cause order to come out of disorder. And of course, Americans would think you're completely insane if you told them that. Right. But, but I think, but I think that like this, yeah, this is actually what we do. <laughs> right. And there's always this kind of admiration for leaders who show up like on the front, right? Like, you know, there, there's, there's just an instinctive respect, like, the late president of Chad, who who just died uh, earlier this year, right? He he died on the front lines uh, after like winning re-election in his country, and he was like, there there's I think there's some I'm not very well versed in the situation, but you know I remember everyone that I knew who was I, I don't really know a lot of people who are experts on the politics of Chad, but when they heard that the president died on the front lines fighting with the troops after. Uh, um, you know, against like some some threat to the the country, like whatever the actual political situation, who is the good guy or the the bad guy there? We, you know, it's it's we're 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 not really versed enough in the the politics of that region to say, but uh, there's an instinctive respect of like the big man in charge is you know fighting with the boys, which you know is is definitely present here with Frederick. And we'll come back to it in book three, I think, because there's a lot of emphasis on sort of individual princes leading from the front and being where the fighting is thickest, uh, which these guys value heavily. Um, Yeah, that happens over and over again. That's I hadn't picked up on that, but you're you're right. uh, Yeah. So and I think I honestly think they get it in part from like, you know, Julius Caesar, right? Like he writes himself as like going around to where the fighting is thickest, inspiring the men. Um, you know, critics of Caesar will say he's like exaggerating and stuff, but he's if he's exaggerating, you know, he's assuming everyone's going to read that and think, "Oh, this guy's great. This guy's awesome." Uh, <laughs> and you know, of course, these guys all read Caesar uh, and they think he's great, and so they want to be like him. Um, yes. So that's actually, oh man, that's a great, it just occurred to me that the middle ages are basically what happens if you both take the ancients, like, yeah, if you both like take Roman antiquity seriously and the gospel seriously, and you do your best to just like weld that into the most Chad lifestyle ever to a pun on what you were just talking about. Yeah. I was trying to figure out how to say that we're both Chads, but we don't know anything about Chad. I don't know. I think if you say you're a Chad, you're sort of not a Chad. So I withheld. Well, you'll notice I haven't commented on that. So, uh, I opened the door and you threw a flashbang through it. I think you're a Chad too, Tim. But uh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. 
<laughs> so, uh, shall shall we begin the Italian campaign now, Josh? Let's. Oh man, this is. I I for sure want to bring order to the disorder of the Italian peninsula. <laughs> so. So right. So they're going to Italy, but now we have to talk about how the Germans go to Italy because this is he's he's not the 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 first emperor who's going to do a campaign into Italy. He won't be the last. Although they kind of stopped doing it at some point. And in like season two or season three, we'll talk about how we think maybe that's a bad sign for the unity of the empire. But actually, we're going to talk about it because it's going to be a logical extrapolation of what we're going to say right now, which is that. <laughs> The Italian campaign is almost like treated as like an like a an essential traditional ritual of the empire of the Germans reasserting like the ancient Frankish claim of Charlemagne to rule Italy to have you know claimed the crown of Rome by conquest uh, right. at the invitation of the Pope because that's literally what's going to happen here is the Pope is inviting him to come to Rome. And in the process, sort out Italy, which is the same thing our listeners will remember happened with Charlemagne because it doesn't stop ever being a problem. <laughs> I'm, I'm queuing up my clip of George Lucas saying it rhymes. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> you know? it does. It, it keeps happening. Um, like, no wonder these guys. I really hope I really hope there's a Venn diagram of, of people who actually get all these terrible jokes. NBA jokes. <laughs> Uh, deep Star Wars lore jokes. True milites of, of the podcaster. Are eating That's right. Stuff. Um, While yeah. you're looking up what we should read, if if you have a spare moment, dear listener, go look up just like YouTube videos about George Lucas talking about the narrative structure of Star Wars. <laughs> it's a, an evening well spent. All right. Here we, this is because he, all right, I've got it. I got it. It's, this is so great. He descri describes it as like, this is just, we just, we do this every time we go to Italy. This is just the way things are done. Uh, meanwhile, it seems necessary to say a few words concerning the jurisdiction over the realm, the jurisdiction over the realm of, you know, basically of Italy. For it is an old custom maintained from the time that the Roman empire passed over to the Franks, even down to our own day. So at this, we should say, I guess, right, like Charlemagne is what? 300, 400 years behind these guys? Right, because it's... Yeah, four, yeah, yeah, foreign change, I think. Right, because Charlemagne dies in 814, and this is like 11-something. So... Oh, no, so that'd be three and change, yeah. Yeah. So they're, like, Charlemagne is, like, as far in the past for them as like the fall of the western roughly as far in the past with them as basically like the dissolution of the western roman empire is for charlemagne right like well and like and literally older than the united states of america right you know <laughs> right it's older <laughs> for for a look to make this relevant to our listeners you know <laughs> right like when someone talks about oh yeah this is a tradition going back to colonial times right like that's older than or that's like younger than what like the tradition of Frankish rule uh, and German rule over Italy is for these guys. So yeah, it is an old custom passed down 
As often as, as the kings have decided to enter Italy, they send ahead certain qualified men of their retinue to go about among the individual cities and towns to demand what pertains to the royal treasury and is called by the natives Fodrum. Um, is that in, yeah, uh, basically like ba they send before they go to Italy, they send emissaries and they're like, hey, remember, you're technically the vassal of the emperor who is coming from Germany. Uh, it's time to yeah. They're like up. fill out fill out your W two. Right, know, it's April. <laughs> right. Hence, it comes about that on the prince's arrival, most of the cities, towns, and strongholds that attempt to oppose this right by absolute refusal, or by not making the full payment, are razed to the ground to give evidence of their impudence to posterity. So there's literally just like a ritual announcement, like, "All right, everyone." Now's your chance to be loyal to the empire, or we're going to do what we always do when we come here, which is beat down whoever, like, like now is your chance to formally announce that you are going to rebel against the empire, because we know some of you are going to try that. So let's just get it out of the way before we get here. And yeah, and the phrase that Otto uses, raised to the ground, I want to emphasize that that is literal, not figurative. If, if the emperor decides that your town has trans has absolutely refused to cooperate he will like minimally kill a bunch of people and maximally he will literally burn and tear down every single building and send you away as refugees to other cities so it's like there's a lot riding on whether you fill out your tax documents properly when the agent of the german irs visits you and says the king is coming, you know? <laughs> right. It, it's, it, it's, it's about to be like, you know, they're, they're, they're risking some, some serious repercussions assuming, but of course they're also probably betting like, can we beat the, can we beat the Germans? Um, yeah. It's like, well, he's going to have to pass through Milan first, you know, maybe he'll be tired by the time he gets to us. You we know, could like probably poison him by then. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's difficult for me to think with as much perfidy as an Italian, but that's, you know. Apologize. Apologies to our Italian <laughs> listeners. If you've stayed with us this long, you must be truly loyal. Um, likewise, another rite is said to have found its source in ancient custom. When the prince it enters Italy, all dignities and magistracies must be vacated and everything administered by his nod in accordance with legal decrees and the judgment of those versed in the law. These judges are said also to accord him so great authority over the land that they think it just to supply for the use of the king as much as he needs from all that the land customary, customarily produces that is essential for his use, may be of advantage to the army, only accepting the cattle and the seed devoted to the cultivation of the soil. So that's, that's an important note here, and it's something that's sort of like implied, I think, a lot, is that when this isn't, there's no concept of total, like there, I mean, Generally speaking, General Sherman, don't read this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when, they, when they devastate these places, they don't like destroy the capacity of the peasantry to like do agriculture. Like when, when they're when they come and they take stuff, there's like we leave enough that like people can still farm. Um, yeah, they tear down towers and walls and gates. Right. And like noblemen's houses and stuff like, you know. Yeah. The people we're we're gonna leave like it's actually it's kind of interesting because the peasants are almost like well we're gonna you know 
we're we're gonna leave their cattle and everything. But uh, like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna break a lot of stuff though. That like, you know, if it's the if it's the governor's house, like, good luck. But uh, well, and this is uh, oh man, sorry, I'm full of just asides tonight. No, that's um, fine. I'm I'm drinking a Sazerac, which has absinthe in it, so I'm sort of dancing with the green fairy, as they say here. Uh, this is my my one episode or my once per episode uh, making fun of Game of Thrones reference. So Game of Thrones has this exactly backwards where Game of Thrones is like actually the the burden of destruction falls primarily on the peasantry and on normal people and not on like the fancy people. And what you're seeing if you read the actual medieval primary sources is in fact it's the opposite, which is that if you're if you're the dork who decides he's not going to cooperate with the emperor on his way in, you're in trouble as the decision maker, but regular people are probably okay. At least like, I mean, I say, okay. Uh, Things bad. Probably not pleasant. Yeah. It's not pleasant for for the Franks to destroy your town, but they're less interested in the thatch roofed farm than they are in the tower and, and the walled, uh, you know, villa, things like that. Right. And I mean, it's obviously, and we'll actually, so I don't know how much detail we'll go into this, but like a major thing that Barbarossa does a lot is like severely restrict the behavior of his soldiers as regards like the local populace they're passing through. Like this is a, I mean, this is a major point of discipline because obviously like, you know, there are always guys who are going to look for excuses to like cause trouble and hurt, you know, break things and like, you know, uh, raise a ruckus but like the expectation is that his army will be under control and that he can actually punish his own men if they're you know being uh uncouth to the to the local peasantry as they're going through yes and uh so with that being said right so we've got this this uh this basically like they're going to invade the the there's there's a custom it's just understood that ritually the germans invade italy and it's sort of like all right you get to choose when the germans come are you going to fight them or are you going to like acknowledge their authority and basically let them like all of your you you give them whatever they need to conduct their campaign um all of your administrators sort of step down and are replaced with like whoever the emperor feels should run your city um or like which in effect, as we'll see later, often means that sort of like the emperor just recon, like the emperor just reconfirms the people who are already running your city, but with the acknowledgement that they're they're running the city at the like with the imperial approval. Uh, yeah, if you're if you're doing basically, like if they come in and people aren't just like, oh my gosh, this dude is the worst. Right. The emperor is probably just going to go like, great, you're in charge again, for the next however long, you know. Uh, if you refuse, obviously you're in huge trouble. But then if you cooperate and everyone is like, oh my gosh, this person is awful, you know, you might find yourself replaced. So it's a it's a pretty chill policy. That's true. Yeah, the emperor is, and throughout like this campaign, the emperor is constantly receiving various envoys from different towns and cities in Italy, basically like either, you know, talking about like who's good and who he should be more lenient with. And who is sort of like, you know, this guy's been causing problems for everyone around us. Like, can you please teach him a lesson? 
And right, because uh, he's like he's closely related to his entire army, basically. Like when he's getting blood spilt on the battlefield, it's like kinfolk who die. You know, I mean, there's the odd you know Hungarian king and his horde, uh, <laughs> but like it it it's genuinely costly for these guys to do proper battle because if anybody dies, it's like, Oh man, I got to go talk to this dude's mom. Right. Who comes to Thanksgiving with me every year, you know, like it, it's sort of that level of seriousness. Uh, and so I think he's looking for every opportunity to, uh, to stick with what works in the area provided again, they're just like basically on board with the project. Right. This is, he's not trying to, he, this is not a nationalist project. He's not trying to turn Italy into Germany. And actually it's discussed elsewhere how unlike the German society, the Italian city-states are, um, to the point that it has to be explained to the presumed German reader how they work. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're never going to believe this, yeah. <laughs> that like, oh yeah, so they, they have these things called, like they, they have elections where, and there there's so many of Some them. of these people don't t- pay their taxes. Yeah. yeah. Can you believe it? Sorry. <laughs> they have just, you know, like hordes of guys. Um, whereas the Germans are, are very much like a quality over quantity by comparison kind of group of just like, they don't have the numbers of the Italians, but like, Every German in the army is a pretty mean fighter. Uh, you don't get sent over the Alps unless you're just like an absolute war machine. And yeah, there's a whole thing about how the Franks are like incredibly tall and strong compared to your average, you know, Italian fighter, uh, and presumably extremely well armed, also. Right, because all these guys are like, I mean, because they come from a place that that fights all the time. They also come from like they're their culture, right? These are, these are the main strength of the army. There are some sergeants who are like trained, like fighter peasants who like, but of course you wouldn't send like scrubs to go across the, the, the Alps. You would bring like the strongest guy. Um, so they pick the strongest guy from every village. And then they have like a whole class of men who are basically just like, because the German knights aren't all even like freemen. This is something that's different about Germany uh, and like German feudalism than the re- than other parts of Europe. But many German knights are are sort of like bondsmen vassals to the to their liege, and they are sort of an unfree warrior class who like your job is to like administrate and then just train constantly to be ready to fight whenever your liege needs you to be. So these all these guys like practice fighting all day every day. Um, like the listener can't see me smiling but <laughs> i'm smiling the analogies to professional sports continue josh yeah no. training training all day every day just to be ready when the coach calls you exactly these guys are these guys are uh you know these guys are in great these guys honestly like these guys are probably in great shape <laughs> <laughs> i believe it <laughs> spring break bodies <laughs> Going to Italy for spring break. <laughs> I mean, and that's so that's another thing too, right? That we I feel like we should touch on here is that like this is a huge sort of like this is a very collective enterprise for the the transalpine part of the empire, right? Is that like all the Germans, even though 
we keep saying Germans like they're one like unified people, right? Like there are a bunch of different tribes and families and clans, right? Like you have the Velfs and Vabelings. Velfs yeah. and Vabelings. You have Saxons. You have Bavarians. You have Swabians, right? You have all these different guys, and but they all do this thing together. Like every few years, they all together go down to Italy and like sort out the Italians, which means they spend a lot of time together, right? In close quarters and like fighting and dying alongside one another. Um, so the, the guys who go back, this is a huge bonding experience, right? Even though they'll like have border disputes and stuff and like bicker over like who controls this farm or this bridge or whatever. Uh, this is something that really, I think, cements them as a people um and like yeah. as a as a sort of fraternity of warriors uh beneath their you know their sort of uh leader their their leader who is also going with them and is like fighting alongside them they're like team captain the emperor um and what's interesting is that we're starting to see now at this point who else is coming along for this project like because you have the ethnic germans of course but this is, I think, a way in which the the because the Bohemians are Slavs. They're not. Our German. podcast just got blacklisted for uttering the phrase "ethnic Germans." <laughs> uh, Cut that out in post. Yeah. The uh, the uh, yeah. So, in addition to those guys, the redacted, um, you have you have the Slavs, the Bohemians are now part of this fraternity of warriors because as will be mentioned throughout this this saga the bohemians are coming along for this and so too uh eventually the hungarians are coming along for this so like while the italians continue to sort of be like the perpetual like problem of the empire empire although as frederick continues going around there are definitely some italians that get sort of incorporated into the imperial entourage but yeah uh, anybody who wants in he's happy to have help Right. I mean, Frederick II will even employ like Muslim soldiers uh, from the, the, the hills of Sicily. Uh, so like there's there's even like basically like the 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 imperial a big part of the imperial project, which, of course, I'm sure they're hearkening back to Rome is like whatever tribe you're with. If you march with the emperor, like you're one of the boys now. Uh, yes. You get you get a you get a stake in, you get a share in the, the the imperial governance you get a part of the you know you're you're recognized as like part of the imperial entourage you have like you know some level of like rights and, and dignities um, so this this sort of like it seems kind of funny because it's like we have to invade our, what is theoretically our own country but <laughs> and we do it so often that there's just like an understood ritual that everyone participates in both us and the people we're invading like everyone just knows how this goes um and we we do this but in the process of it it really sort of creates this dynamic that kind of cements uh the the imperial system um of sort of like it, it actually seems to be in 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 a strange way the the unrest, the frequent unrest in Italy seems to provide benefits to the empire in terms of like helping it like function um, or, or like inspiring it to have to function. Eventually it will also cause other problems when they don't deal with this. But um, 
Yeah, and you can imagine it going well too. Like you could imagine the emperor's visit or the soon to be named emperor's visitation going much better. It's uh but you're right that this is a, a ritually enacted cycle. Um but that actually improves like it, if I can allow myself a very brief excursus I'm finishing up uh Ernst Kantarovitz's Frederick II book and it's about I'm in the part where Frederick II is running around doing stuff in Italy and Italy is like significantly better off for him for some other reasons too, but in large part due to uh, Barbarossa's very salutary influence on the peninsula. Uh, and like the, the Hohenstaufens are actually pretty well regarded or significantly better regarded by the time Frederick II rolls around than they were when Frederick I, you know, Barbarossa is, uh, is out there. So it, it, even though it's sort of a dysfunctional ritual right now, it actually becomes more functional over time when it's done well, uh, which, you know, we broadly speaking think is going to happen here. Um, I, I have, or I was going to sort of pivot to the, the Roman portion, like the, the contest for Rome itself for the Italian campaign now, Josh, unless you want to do some other stuff first. No, I think that makes sense. I mean, I think we say, right, like, so Frederick, there's, we don't have to go over this. There's this cool ritual where, like, the emperor calls uh, anyone who, there, there's a hill where they stand and they call all of the, the Germans who are expected to show up. And anyone who doesn't show up with troops or send, like, an acceptable excuse is basically, you know, like, put on the wall of shame. Uh, until the next campaign, essentially. Um, yeah, a, a literal roll call. Yeah, yeah. like there's like okay, uh, where is uh, you know the count of, of of you know Regensburg or something? I'm not sure if there's a count of Regensburg, <laughs> but but you know like they they're like and if the count of Regensburg doesn't show up with his like however many guys he's supposed to have with him, uh, he is basically like. Um, I think he has to give up his regalia or something like he's basically like he has to go and beg the imperial forgiveness. Um, yeah, the the Italians are held to account. We've already talked about how they are, but the Germans are held to just as strict an account. If right. you don't show up on the hill with you or or a decent substitute, uh, bad news. Right. And we should maybe also say here that like right now. So this campaign is occurring at the behest of some of the Italians. Obviously, not all of them. Some of them are, are perfectly happy with the situation in Italy. <laughs> yeah. but the, not a lot of Milanese casting themselves at Frederick's feet here. Right, but they're being invited to come. And they're also being invited by the Pope, who is, you know, uh, ruler of a... of Well, he's trying to be ruler of the, the, the city of Rome. That's actually going very poorly for him right now. Uh, and so let's transition to that. So Frederick gets his army... Anybody who doesn't show up is shamed. Anybody who does show up is like, all right, uh, it, it, it's time for it's time for uh, Imperial Boy Summer in, uh, in Italy. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they're they're going down there, and uh, then he gets contacted by the Pope. Who, well, the Pope sneaks out of Rome. Right, yeah. the Pope is run out of Rome because the Romans are doing this thing they do periodically, where a bunch of like 
uh, Roman like nobles decide to run the Pope out of town and declare that they're going to do the Republic again. And this time, <laughs> yeah. finally, it's going to work. <laughs> yeah. Did it work for any of them? No, it never does. But it might work for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they basically are like, let's do the Senate all over again. Right. Uh, and anyway, so what happens is like the Pope sneaks out because he knows Frederick is on the way. And he's like, all right, here's how we're going to do this. I need to get you into the city and crown you emperor. And then it's going to be a lot easier to deal with the Romans. But like until you're emperor, they're going to feel like they've sort of got one over on you. Uh, so the Pope goes out secretly and does that. And, uh, un- and then the Romans who don't know that this has happened, or at least at the way Otto describes it, they don't know that this has happened. They send a letter to Frederick, uh, basically offering him a deal. And that, that letter we will now read along with Frederick's response. Yeah. Um, okay. But the citizens of Rome, and this is, uh, chapter 29, Josh, uh, but the citizens of Rome learning, learning of the prince's arrival, decided to sound out his inclinations in advance by an embassy. Therefore, they appointed scholarly and learned men as their representatives to meet him between Sutri and Rome, having first received a safe conduct for their protection, and thus being presented before the consistory of his royal excellency, the the men began to speak as follows. We, the ambassadors of the city, no insignificant part of the city, O excellent king, have been sent to your excellency by the Senate and the people of Rome. Uh, SPQR, as they say. Hear with calm mind and gracious ears what is brought to your attention by the city that is the kindly mistress of the world, the city of which, by God's aid, you shall soon be prince, emperor, and lord. If you have come, nay, because as I, the people, believe you have come, in peace I rejoice. You seek authority over the world. I arise willingly to give you the crown. I arise willingly to give you the crown, they say. <laughs> I meet with you rejoicing. For why should not a prince come peacefully to visit his people? Why not, O oh Romans? Uh, why should he not treat with notable <laughs> munificence the people who have awaited his coming with great and protracted expectation in order to shake off the unseemly yoke of the clergy? <laughs> yeah. My, my why should the emperor not come with notable munificence t-shirt is raising a lot of questions already answered by my t-shirt. <laughs> right. And we'll just say briefly here that there's this like guy in the city right now who's like basically telling the Romans he's some sort of like uh, he, he's basically like this this like self-taught like um, self-appointed like popular inter- intellectual guy who who he's LARPing as a, a Roman senator. Yeah. yeah, he's like, and he's like a pseudo intellectual dude who's like telling everyone that like, really, we should run the Pope out of town. It's just, you know, obviously we, the, 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 the Senate should govern the city. Uh, and so like, that's the dig of the clergy is like a reference to like his doctrine that he's talking about. Um, yes. Uh, continuing, I pray for the return of former times. I ask for the return of the privileges of the renowned city. May the city under this prince take the helm of the world once more. May the insolence of the world be checked under this emperor and be subjected to the sole sole rule of the city. May such a ruler be adorned with fame as well as with the name of Augustus. Now you know that the city of Rome, by the wisdom of the senatorial dignity and the valor of the equestrian order, man, the LARPing is deep, uh, sending out her bows from sea to sea, 
has not only extended her empire to the ends of the earth, but has even added to her world the islands that lie beyond the world and planted there the shoots of her dominion. That's England, by the way. That's... Oh, nice. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't read that. According, according to our, our translator, that's England. Yeah. Uh, the boisterous waves of the seas could not protect those, nor could the rugged and inaccessible crags of the Alp defend these. Man, people have got to read this stuff. It's so fun. Yeah. Indomitable Roman valor has subdued all. But for our sins, since our princes dwelt at a great distance from us, that notable token of our antiquity, I refer to the Senate, was given over to neglect by the slothful carelessness of certain men. As wisdom slumbered, strength too was of necessity diminished. I have arisen to reinstate the Holy Senate of the Holy City and the equestrian order to enhance your glory (laughs) and that of the divine republic, that by the decree of the one and the arms of the other, its ancient splendor may return to the Roman Empire and to your person. Should this not please your nobility, why not? Uh, Will not so notable a deed and one so in keeping with your authority be judged even worthy of reward? Hear then, O prince, with patience and with clemency, a few matters that have to do with your justice and with mine. About yours, however, before I speak of mine. uh, uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, this is is where it gets really, yeah. This, yeah, uh, man, cover, cover any children's ears who are in listening range. This is just awful. Uh, four, the beginning is from Jove. You were a stranger. I made you a citizen. You were a newcomer from the regions beyond the Alps. I have established you as a prince. What was rightfully mine, I gave to you. You ought, therefore, first afford security for the maintenance of my good customs and ancient laws, Strengthen for me by the emperors and your predecessors that they may not be violated by the fury of barbarians. Man, this, whoever wrote this just like went off the rails. Yeah. Uh, to, it started off okay, I guess. To my officials who must acclaim you on the capital, you should give as much as 5,000 pounds as expense money. This is like... <laughs> Bring a briefcase full of... Their pride is like audibly like swelling as they're writing. <laughs> like it just gets worse. This is insanity. (laughs) Didn't you hear what happened to the dude at Frederick's coronation? Like, you should not do this. (laughs) You should avert harm from the Republic, even to the extent of the shedding of your blood, and safeguard all this by privileges, and establish it by the interposition of an oath with your own hand. (laughs) Man. So So this is is bad. (laughs) Hear, oh listener, uh, how Frederick responds. (laughs) Hear upon the king inflamed with righteous anger by the tenor of a speech as insolent as it was unusual, (laughs) interrupted the flow of words of those ambassadors concerning the jurisdiction of their republic and of the empire as they were about to spin out their oration in the Italian fashion by lengthy and circuitous periods, (laughs) preserving his royal dignity with modest bearing and charm of expression. He replied, without preparation, but not unprepared. Uh, and then, Josh, do you want to read this? Because sure. I've been reading a long time, and I'm also just losing it. <laughs> right. So this is the, the – right. So what's great is he, like, he stresses the, the difference between these guys who are, are a lot of talk and have clearly Italian prepared fashion. this. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of scheming and, like, you know, this is a, this is a very wordy people. It's kind of throwing back to his comment about uh, about Abelard before of like he comes from a place of of men who are very good at like sounding intelligent and very little else. Um, yeah. 
and uh, the 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 emperor. In contrast with 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 Frederick, who is who is moderate, and this is not a he didn't he came he came without preparation, but not unprepared. So this is an extemporaneous speech, um, but it is he's he's prepared for it by his general mode of living. Um, we have heard much heretofore concerning the wisdom and the valor of the Romans, yet more concerning their wisdom. <laughs> Wherefore, we cannot wander enough at finding your words insipid with swollen pride rather than seasoned with the salt of wisdom. Right? It's like, I thought Romans were supposed to be like wise. Like, what's going on? You set, yeah. you set forth the ancient renown of your city. You extol to the very stars the ancient status of your sacred republic. Grant it, grant it, to use the words of your own writer, uh, Cicero. He's he's just quoting Cicero to them now. There was. Yeah, from memory. Yeah. There was once virtue in this republic. Once, <laughs> I say. And oh, that we might truthfully and freely say now. <laughs> your Rome, nay, ours also. <laughs> no, comrade, our Rome. Yeah. Has experienced the vicissitudes of time. She could not be the only one to escape a fate ordained by the author of all things for all that dwell beneath the orb of the moon. What shall I say? It is clear how first the strength of your nobility was transferred from this city of ours to the royal city of e the East, and how for the course of many years the thirsty Greekling sucked the breast of your delight. Then came the Frank, truly noble. So he's saying like, you know, after eventually right like the seat of the empire was transferred to constantinople and for a while like uh even you know like rome just sort of acknowledged that the when the western empire uh collapsed it was still understood that the emperor in constantinople was uh the the emperor then came the frank truly noble indeed as in name and forcibly possessed himself of whatever freedom was still left to you do you wish to know the ancient glory of your rome the worth of this senatorial dignity, the impregnable disposition of the camp, the virtue and the discipline of the equestrian order, its unmarried and unconquerable boldness when advancing to a conflict. Behold our state. <laughs> All these things are to be found with us. All these have descended to us together with the empire. Not in utter nakedness did the empire come to us. It came clad in its virtue. It brought its adornments with it. With us are your consuls. With us is your senate. With us is your soldiery. These are the very leaders of the Franks must rule you by their counsel. These very knights of the Franks must avert harm from you with the sword. You boastfully declare that by you I have been summoned, that by you I have been made first a citizen and then the prince, that from you I have received what was yours. How lacking in reason. reason. How void of truth this novel utterance is may be left to your own judgment to the decision of men of wisdom so to you <laughs> and also to men of wisdom because you've proved that that's not you yeah. <laughs> let us ponder over the exploits of modern emperors to see whether it was not our divine princes charles and otto who by their valor and not by anyone's bounty wrested the city along with italy from the greeks and the lombards and added it to the realms of the franks Desiderius and Berengar teach you this, your tyrants, of whom you boasted, on whom you relied as your princes. We have learned from reliable accounts 
that they were not only subjugated and taken captive by our Franks, but grew old and ended their lives in their servitude. Their ashes buried among us constitute the clearest evidence of this fact. (laughs) (laughs) But you say you came on my invitation. I admit it. I was invited. Give me the reason why I was invited. You were being assailed by enemies and could not be freed by your own hand or by the effeminate Greeks. The power of the Franks was invoked by invitation. I would call it entreaty rather rather than invitation. In your misery, you besought the happy. In your frailty, the valiant. In your weakness, the strong. And in your anxiety, the carefree. Invited after that fashion, if it may be called an invitation. I have come. I have made your prince my vassal, and from that time until the present have transferred you to my jurisdiction. I am the lawful possessor. Let him who can snatch the club from the hand of Hercules. Can you... (laughs) I'm imagining, like, a whole, you know, little company of scribes with just like their arms cramping up just like i have to get this down like this is so good this is gold yeah (laughs) will the sicilian in whom you trust perhaps do this let him take note of previous cases not yet has the hand of the franks or the germans been made weak by god's help if i live that man will be able someday to test his own boldness you demand the justice that i owe you i say nothing of the fact that the prince should prescribe laws for the people not the people for the prince. I pass over the fact that any possessor who is about to enter upon his possession should submit to no prejudicial conditions. Let us argue reasonably. You propose, as I understand it, to extract exact three oaths. I will discuss each separately. You say I must swear to observe the laws of my predecessors, the emperors, that are guaranteed you by their privileges and likewise your good customs. You even add that I am to swear to defend the fatherland at the very risk of my life. To these, I make, to these two, I make a single response. The things you demand are either just or unjust. If they are unjust, it will not be yours to demand or mine to concede them. If yeah. they are just, I acknowledge that I am willing because of the obligation and that I am under obligation because of my willingness. <laughs> Wherefore, it will be unnecessary to affix an oath of, to an obligation which I an assent and an assent which is an obligation. For how could I infringe upon your just claims? since I desire to preserve even to the lowliest, for even the lowliest, that which is theirs. How could I fail to defend the fatherland and especially the seat of my empire, even at the risk of my life, when I have been giving thought to the restoration of its frontiers, so far as it is within my power, not without consideration of that same danger. Denmark recently subjugated, so the the Danes actually kind of like pay homage to the emperor, pay homage to Frederick. Um, Even the Danes, yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, a long way from Rome. Denmark, recently subjugated and restored to the Roman world, has learned this. And perhaps more provinces and more kingdoms would have perceived it if the present undertaking had not intervened. So I, you're worried about me, like, shedding my blood for the empire. I would be out, you know, restoring the empire to its glory if you guys, you know, had things yeah. together here in Italy. Yeah, if you guys weren't beefing with the Pope for no reason, basically. I come to the third provision. You declare that I should personally swear to pay you a certain sum of money. How (laughs) disgraceful. 
you roam, demand from your pin, prince what some sutler would rather seek from a peddler. With, the, with us, these demands are made of captives. Am I, then, held in captivity? Am I weighed down by the enemy's bonds? Do I not sit on my throne, renowned and attended by a great force of valiant soldiers? Shall a Roman emperor be forced against his will to be anyone's purveyor and not his benefactor? Hitherto I have been accustomed to bestow my favors royally and munificently upon whom I pleased, and as much as was seemly, and particularly to those who have deserved well of me. For as due respect is properly demanded from inferiors, so a fitting service is justly repaid by superiors. This practice received from my sainted parents, I have elsewhere observed. Why should I deny it to my own citizens? Why should I not make the city happy upon my entrance? All is justly denied to him who demands unjustly. With these words, and not without a justifiable indignation of spirit, he brought his speech to an end and was silent. So, I think we can see here, like, we haven't heard him talk hardly at all right. for one and a half books now. And, you know, he came without preparation, but not unprepared, as Otto says. Uh, you get a sense of why all of the, the support in Germany coalesced around this dude and why, you know, the, the people in Italy who'd been run out by Roger are coming to him asking for some help. This is why. This dude just extemporaneously completely owns these dudes. And and I would like to point out, like, it's not just that he's a strong man. Like, he is, as he says, sort of seated on, not sort of, he's seated on his throne surrounded by valiant soldiers. But he actually understands the obligations and the duties of the emperor better than these guys do. He's like, you're trying to tell me what I'm supposed to do. This is exactly what I am doing and would be doing if not for you guys causing a mess. Uh, you know, he, he has a stronger sense of what Rome is and what the emperor is than these silly Romans who are LARPing the Senate. Right. And it's like he says, right? Like, you're trying to get me to give you... Basically, you're asking me to, like promise you a bunch of like special special favors and stuff anything you want that is a just demand i will give you because it is my duty to be the enactor of justice in the empire like anything you're asking from me that is unjust will be denied um as it should be and no oath would no oath would make something that is unjust just. Um, yeah, exactly. It's the whole thing is just preposterous. <laughs> uh, this is also great because it, uh, in not to spend a whole bunch of time in this episode talking about the next episode, but in book three, there's a similar occasion of great umbrage amongst the Franks, uh, which you know the let the reader understand, you know, the people who are well-versed in this stuff, what it's going to be about. But uh, you can see that, like, these, <laughs> these people really understand the principle of the whole imperial operation very well. And their responses are, I think, genuinely principled. You know, this, this is not some strong barbarian just descending down there to enrich himself. 
he really like he's there because he believes in the empire uh and it there's a whole great scene we've just read like five straight pages uh, so yeah. of the narrative so like we're not going to go into excruciating detail but basically what happens is like after this you know the romans go back and sort of lick their wounds and they're like well i guess you know crap we gotta like prepare for battle because this isn't gonna go well um and they basically try to like i i'm forgetting the exact details but they they try to ambush might be a strong word but they they try to keep him from getting into rome and he he sneaks in and is crowned emperor right he and the pope there's actually this cool thing where like the pope has his loyal supporters like they're they're you know the papal army is like holding saint peter's or something and like the pope basically gets word to them that, like the emperor's coming we're gonna have a coronation mass and then we're yeah, gonna like fight now. our way back out of the city yeah 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 and so like frederick sneaks in they like they get the deed done and uh now that frederick is emperor he's like let's take on the romans and Which the romans is... try to yeah go ahead yeah, the Romans try to attack him, and, like, there's this whole big battle outside the city, and there's something like one or no Frankish casualties and just a slaughter of the, of the unprepared and, uh, you know, under-trained Romans. It, I forget what the exact figures are, but I think it's literally, like, the Franks just, like, didn't lose anybody, and at the end they're like, oh, man. Yeah, that went even better than we thought it was going to go. Right, because it's frequently a problem that the Franks try to go into Italy and do stuff, and they take massive casualties, and they have to, like, go home um, before they can sort of put things in order. But the the fact that, Char that uh, I was going to call him Charlemagne, the fact that the new Charlemagne, Frederick, uh, is able to um, accomplish all this with, like, little to no casualties at all, even though, like he the pope still has to kind of like flee rome afterwards because there's just too much you know it the the situation is still such a mess um the fact that the franks were able to like get in there you know get him get the emperor and the pope to the to saint peter's uh and then get them back out uh and without like you know the army like dying uh is a sign of frederick's ability to sort of create order uh, and that he is, this guy is the real deal. This guy is is uh, a legit emperor. And I think it's also, again, worth noting that the, the sort of uh, the sacral component of this is so essential that despite the fact that the city where they would do the coronation, like where it's, it's considered appropriate to do the coronation mass is, you know, in under control of like rebels, they literally go into the rebel city just to do the coronation mass essentially right like yeah yeah so it says uh they snuck in at the break of day so basically they started marching because they were way outside the city they started marching under cover of darkness and basically entered before any any of the romans were awake it sounds like you know right. the, these guys have had too much red wine and are are too busy uh you know misunderstanding cicero in the evenings uh, <laughs> to actually be up and guarding the gates. Uh, and so they go in, they have mass. Uh, and okay, there are two, two short things I want to read. Uh, so Otto says, you might have seen the soldiery gleaming so brightly in the splendor of their armor, marching so regularly in unbroken order 
that it might properly be said of them, terrible is an army with many banners. And that verse of Maccabees, the sun shone upon their shields of gold and the mountains shone therewith. Uh, And then he describes the battle. This battle lasted from about the 10th hour of the day until nightfall. There were slain there or drowned in the Tiber almost a thousand. About 600 were taken captive. So that's 1,600 effective casualties for the Romans. Uh, The wounded were innumerable. All the remainder were put to flight. Of our men, strange to say, only one was killed, one taken captive. (laughs) Uh, For the unhealthful climate and the very extreme heat at that season, especially in the neighborhood of the city, had more power to harm our men than the weapons of the enemy. (laughs) It's like, you know, the, the, the heat of the Roman climate was more dangerous for a Franken armor than a Roman with weapons. Yeah, no, and right, like, I was just, like, it clearly was a, an experience that Otto was going to remember for the for the rest of his life of, like, just imagine those guys, right? Like, you sneak into the ancient city, the city where St. Peter and St. Paul were martyred, to, like, the place of their martyrdom, right? Uh, you, you sneak into the city under the cover of darkness, and then you, like, you know, you attend the the coronation mass where the successor of Peter, uh, you know, anoints Caesar emperor. And then you all march out in battle. Like that had to be like the most exhilarating day of these guys' lives. Like, yes. After yes. The, like after this, like everything else is just like, we can do anything. Like, and I think that's probably part of why this is a success for them. Like we could, we, we got it. We did this. You know, this was incredible. Like, you know, God is with us. We're we're able to do this. Um, we're gonna we're gonna make the empire happen. Um, yeah, it's it's beautiful stuff. Um, and we should point out. Well, I guess we've got two things left to wrap up. One is like the overall evaluation of this Italian campaign, and then the other one is the resolution of the the Duke Henry versus Duke Henry over the Duchy of Bavaria stuff. Um, and then we can conclude. The, the reason we want to talk about the evaluation of the Italian campaign, or no, should we do the, the Henry stuff first and then do the evaluation of the Italian campaign? I think that might be yeah, I think dramatically that's right. appropriate. So okay. let's, let's just briefly say that there's, so like it is established that the city of Milan is a huge problem. Um, but the 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 emperor is not able to do so because he's he he you only have so long that you can be in Italy before you have to get back up to Germany, right? Because the weather gets bad and all that stuff. Yeah, and, you can't cross the Alps in winter, you know? right? And also, you don't want to keep your guys like it, it's a lot to ask your guys to spend like the entire year uh, in Italy because you know they they have you know families and everything, which is a surprise. A surprisingly humane way to conduct war. <laughs> yeah, it never really occurred to me before. That's like it's funny that they just fight, you know, in like war season. But then it's like, wait a minute, that means that like every year all the troops get to go home, which is, you know, not not how things are done nowadays. But uh, the um, and like on both sides, that was sort of the understanding. But uh, the so they they they're going to go home. Uh, to Germany, uh, but 
they on the way they they like put down this one city that's like an ally of Milan, um, and it's a smaller city, and the city gets rebuilt after they leave. So uh, you might think that they didn't. Oh, and someone tries to also on the way back up. Someone tries to kill them or betray them, and Frederick sees through the trick uh, and gets past them and ends up, you know. Oh yeah, they send an assassin them. in. Yeah, right. Like it's real bad, and he's like nearly miraculously saved. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, and there's some like shenanigan with like fake bridges that are set up to like collapse under them or something, but they don't. Or it, it, it's there. There are so many attempts to just like basically they're just trying to embarrass or like try to kill or sort of make the emperor look weak and all of them fail. Um, he doesn't like wipe out all of the rebellious cities or like subjugate them, but like the attempts to make him look weak fail. And then he gets back to Germany and the two Henry's are still at odds. Uh, they keep there. This problem is still here, but something very important has changed, right? He's no longer just this newly eject, newly elected, fresh-faced, uh, you know, king that's like unproven aside from sort of his personal. I mean, I guess he was already duke, but like he hadn't really proven that he could be sovereign. Um, but now he's back. He is emperor of the known world. Uh, he is, uh, you know. He has successfully done the ritual invasion of Charlemagne. Um, and things are a little different. So now when he calls the Henrys, things are going to be different. Do you want to read section 53, Tim? Yeah. Let me flip to it. Uh, wait. No, oh, this my fifty three is about Boris the Hungarian. Oh no, it's fifty five. Or no, excuse me, with Boris Wait, the Hungarian. No. Yeah, it's fifty five. My bad. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when the emperor met his uncle on the field where the latter was encamped under tents, nearly two German miles from the town, with all the great and important men present, the plan which had for so long been kept secret was announced. Now this, as I recall, as or as I recall it, was the essential part of the agreement. The elder Henry resigned the Duchy of Bavaria to the Emperor by the surrender of seven banners. These were handed over to the younger, Henry the Lion. The latter gave back, so Henry the Younger gave back by two banners the East Mark with the counties that pertained to it from of old. Thereupon, by the judgment of the princes, the Emperor made of that mark with the aforesaid counties uh, a duchy and handed it over not only to Henry the Elder but also to his wife with two banners, and ordained that it might not be changed or infringed upon in the future by any of his successors. Uh, this was done in such and such a year of the king and the ruler, or of the emperor. Um, so, yeah, he he manages to uh, really properly resolve who's in charge of Bavaria without making the loser not a duke anymore. Is that correct? Yeah. So the problem is the other Henry the Lion really should be like, I, I guess like his claim is the one that the emperor thinks is more legitimate. Um, but the other Henry, uh, Henry the Elder, the, is, as you as we denoted him here, is uh, if he stands down, 
then he's from like a very high status status family and he's stepping down from like if he gives up bavaria he's no longer going to be a duke yeah he's just a count right which is you know there are a lot of counts underneath each duke right dukes are sort of like regional overlords counts are sort of like a, a much uh a lower status sort of like administrator i mean that... Like a county. Yeah, a yeah. count is the ruler of a county. So you can imagine it's uh, not merely like a bunch of counties make up a state, but almost like a bunch of counties make up like a region. Yeah, a duchy. Or something. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I'm like trying to sort of analogize it to the United States. Oh, I guess yeah. I guess state would be fair. So like it's the difference between uh, being county commissioner and being governor or something. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, American counties are... It, yeah, it's tricky, but it is kind of a state too because each of the the original stem duchies uh, are tribes of Germany. So, like you're the Duke of the Bavarian because right. Duke comes from Dukes, right? Which is leaders, so like war chief. Um, so you're 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 Duke of the Bavarians or you're Duke of the Saxons. Um, and what Frederick's sort of genius. Gordian not cutting solution is here is uh, he'll just create a new duchy and give it to uh, the former Duke of Bavaria so that there's no hard feelings. And anyway, you know, he's he's on the East Mark, uh, which is kind of a strategically important part of the empire. Uh, it, it abuts uh, Hungary and sort of some Slavic countries to the east. Uh, it will come to be known as, uh, you know, the, I'm, I'm not going to try to say the German word. It's like Österreich or something, but you English speakers will know it as Austria. Um, which, yeah, so not a, not a small place that this right, guy was given. Yeah. <laughs> right. The future seat of the Habsburgs, the, I, the Habsburgs, I don't think they might be counts at this time. I'm not even sure if they're even counts yet, but, um. So the Habsburgs, who may not even be around, I'd have to check on that. Um, if they're around, they're not. They're by no means a prominent family yet in the empire. Uh, but the future seat of the Habsburgs is established as a duchy um, by Frederick Barbarossa, and it is at this time. It, it's it's a mark, which means it's like a frontier territory. Uh, so he is elevating it from a mark to a duchy um so sort of and it, which also kind of improves its status uh and improves the status of its leader um and you have to imagine right that he so like he's basically he's creating like a new like high level regional overlord office right which is you know could potentially ruffle some fre feathers in the empire that he's just creating like this new very important very high status position that now everybody has to like respect um like the space force like <laughs> it, it it's you know that that it'll it's a little bit like that that he's just creating this like new kind of you know branch of the the german empire i mean it's it was already under their control or of yeah. the the holy roman empire excuse me excuse me excuse me um but uh the the empire is now he's created this, this duchy the Space Force analogy works perfectly. Oh, my gosh. Right. Because it's like it was already, you know, it was already under the jurisdiction, the sort of overlapping jurisdiction of the other branches of the military. And then right. it was sectioned off and given its own 
uh, its own status. I guess, well, I don't know. I, maybe it falls down because isn't the Air Force like secretly still? I'm not sure how that works, but I, okay. I mean, that's how it's the close Air... enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, you have I'm to. I'm full of relevant explanations for our listeners tonight, Josh. It it's great. You're you're really tying it in there, Tim. You're 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 connecting. <laughs> You know, you're 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 making the past come alive for our listeners. Uh, <laughs> and uh, what's really, but what's really interesting about this, I think, that is that, right? Like, this would be a big ask to be like, "Hey guys, I want to create this new position," because like, if you're a duke, right? Like, a new duke has to be like treated with special dignities and honors. And it's like, you know, now we gotta like pretend that this new duchy is like, you know, this high status thing, and not pretend. You have to actually act like it. Um, but who is he asking to approve that? He's asking the guys who snuck out with him to the coronation mass before dawn in the empire, the guys who were with him fighting the Romans in Rome, the guys who watched him tell the Romans off when they tried to like get him to bribe them, the guys who were there when he defeated, he foiled the assassination attempts and like got through all the shenanigans. He's asking the guys who did the ritual invasion with Charlemagne with him and felt like we are the Franks of old. We are, we are the heirs of the Roman empire. And this is our, this is our Caesar. This is our ruler. Uh, and if he needs this to bring peace and order to the empire empire, we are a hundred percent. Okay with that. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, it's all underwritten with, uh, the competence he demonstrated in the Italian campaign, which, which brings us to our final point, which is that, Uh, our editor makes uh, our translator and editor makes a little bit of a nuisance of himself on occasion by, uh, you know, offering unsolicited evaluations (laughs) of these things. So like a lot of his stuff are, you know, good explanatory glosses that I assume are perfectly competent and accurate. Uh, But then every once in a while he's like, and then, you know, these people all thought it was great, but it was terrible. And so he thinks that this Italian campaign is a total failure because they failed to uh, conclusively settle the Milanese and therefore the, uh, the, the Lombards. Right. So, and I, I think to be fair to our editor, and we, we, are, we are greatly indebted to uh, Yeah, yeah. Charles I'm very grateful that he's made this. Yeah, yeah. Because he like, apparent, and he, yeah, so this dude is great. He translated and edited this. And then also the two cities, yeah, uh, like made a life's work out of making Otto of Freising's major works available to people. And Otto of Freising was not like a popular character at the time. And so he really is a great dude for his service in those ways. However, some of his takes are bad. Yeah, like definitely. I mean, well, so we we definitely have to reconsider that he's he's. I think it's worth revisiting and not just to just, you know, taking in stride some of his analysis of what happened here. Um, and we're not just doing this off our, our, our own intuition. Um, you know, we, we, we are guided always, of course, by, uh, Viscount Bryce. Uh, the... I thought you were going to say Providence, but close enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's an escapable. That's, uh, uh um, but you know, I, I think, I, I, well, and this is, you know, smarter guys than us have talked about this in, in various literature, but um, 
I think it's I think Miro is not the only person who reads the deeds of Frederick and says, well, from a sort of tactical perspective, from like a strict, well, what was the goals of this military campaign? Well, you went down there supposedly to deal with the Normans in Sicily. You didn't do any of that. Uh, and you didn't really yeah. conclusively defeat that weird revolt going on in Rome. And you didn't defeat the Milanese. So from a tr strategic perspective, like just from in terms of the actual material goals of your campaign, this was an absolute failure. You wasted a bunch of time and energy and got at least some people killed, uh, you know, to accomplish basically nothing particularly strategically noteworthy. But that is not how they think about it at all. Otto clearly thinks that this is a huge success. The rest of the Germans and even the other nobles in book three, it's, it's clearly established that everyone else in Europe thinks that Frederick is like a man to be feared and a man to be reverenced. Uh, yeah. Cause he's, he's going to go back to Italy in the next book. And like you say, the, the success of this first Italian campaign is what underwrites the resolution of the two Henry's controversy. And then gins up plenty of support for the next much more conclusive Italian campaign, which is recounted in book three. Yeah. And so we have to say like, well, all right. I, I think on the terms that Miro and other sort of, you know, other modern scholars are evaluating it, it makes sense why you would think it's a failure. But why do the medievals think it's a success? And why, like, why, like, clearly the people in the book, the people that Frederick deals with, the people of his day and age thought this campaign was success, success. And why is that? You know, and I think it's because uh, the, you know, it's because of our, what we said at the beginning was like the emperor by his presence brings order and brings stability um, and by his power. And so what he is able to do is basically just show that he can hold the army together, that he can be strong. Um, that he's not going to be tricked, he's not going to be duped, he's not going to be bullied or bribed, um, and that he is able to sort of, you know, become, right, like to them, being anointed emperor is not a symbolic victory, because they believe that the anointing is an actual, like, obviously they wouldn't bother it under such strategic risks if they didn't think it does something, right? Like, it really does something. Like, they believe that he sort of receives... This, you know, he sort of that's receives a, the grace of state. I think that's got to be right. Is that if you if you don't really believe in the consecration of the emperor, it's hard to see how this. It's hard to it's hard to not think of this as like George Bush's mission accomplished. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like mission was very much not accomplished. <laughs> um, but on a on a different set of criteria, I this obviously sets Frederick and the empire on significantly steadier footing than it was before. Right. Like he has been, he has been successfully blessed and God has shown his favor on that blessing by through his providence, granting that Frederick is able to overcome his enemies and return to the empire unscathed and with a healthy, strong army uh, that has not been shamed on the battlefield. Uh, right. Like, and so from that, like 
that is clearly to them that's not just like oh well whatever like that's just all coincidences and like you know he just got lucky to them that's like you know this this is a tremendous portent of what is to come yeah it's uh it's exciting there are books three and four yet to come uh which hold their own uh intrigues and delights if i if i can i will just briefly summarize the the rest of our planned content for this season which is to do book three to do book four and then we would love if there's uh if there's sufficient interest to do like a mailbag episode of you know reader uh questions and comments and stuff so if you want to email us at the email address uh that josh says before every episode we would absolutely delight in (laughs) just sort of riffing on what our listeners are are interested in uh for an episode and i think that will then conclude uh season quote-unquote one yes uh we we would love to hear from you uh feel free to send us your your questions i'll put in the voice later with the the voiceover with the email but um yeah I mean, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to hearing more about Frederick Barbarossa. Uh, the the response to the Romans is just like, it's if you if you don't come away inspired by that, you know, don't listen to this podcast. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine anybody who's gotten this deep in. <laughs> And isn't excited by that sort of thing that you never know. If you're one of the um, people that kept listening after the Charlemagne episodes, you're going to love the Barbarossa line. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, Josh, thank you so much. This has been uh, a delight, and I look forward to doing books three and four soon. Thank you, Tim. It's It's been a delight discussing them with you, and I also look forward to it. That's it for our discussion of Book 2 of The Deeds of Frederick. Thank you for listening, and please join us next time as we discuss Book 3. In the meantime, for now, the ravens are flying.